You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. So anyway, it's great to be together. If we've not met, my name's Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're glad that you're here. And what we're going to do now is just go through a study of God's Word. Uh, I'm going to teach a section of Scripture. We're going through a book called Ephesians. And uh, today we're going to be looking in chapter 2 through verses 11 through 12. Uh, And I'm calling this uh, message today, The New We, W-E, The New We, because that's what this passage is really about. Now, what we've covered so far in the book of Ephesians is that Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, is writing this letter to these early Christians, and he is really laying out what we might call the story of God or the plan of redemption or God's great work uh, to make all things new in a broken world. Uh, And so that's what he's been laying out for them, and he starts with them, and he says, listen, guys, Uh, You were chosen by God from eternity past. Before there was even a creation, God had set his affection on you and had predestined that you would be adopted as his children. It's amazing to start out with that. And he says this all happened because Jesus came and died for you, and God gave you the Holy Spirit to seal that and make it real in your life. And he says all of this that he's done to save you personally is because chapter 1, verse 10, it's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So he's basically saying God, uh, Jesus is restoring all that has been lost, all that is broken, and he's done that by bringing you into relationship with him to be his people. And last week we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, this explanation of what God's done for us individually. Uh, He says that we were all dead in sin and uh, that we were living according to our flesh, but God made us alive by his Spirit, all by grace. And he saved us, not by our works, he saved us by what he did for us. And now he's made us a new creation, created so that we would do good, new works that he's called us to do. Not saved by our works, but saved for good works to be a part of his purposes. And that passage was somewhat individual as well. But the passage we're looking at today, well, it's quite different. It's not about individual salvation. It's about group salvation. It's about peoples. It's about the people of God and God's plan to not just gather a collection of individuals, but to save people and reconcile them to himself, but also to one another. So last week, we could say we sort of looked at the vertical dimension, meaning upward, us and God, of our being reconciled to God. Today, we're going to look at the horizontal dimension, what it means to be reconciled to his people, because that's what God's up to in these days, is that he is making a people for himself that will demonstrate his great mercy and grace. So it's both. It's individual and it's community. In our culture, we tend to maximize individualism Uh, and individual salvation, which is very important, but we tend to minimize corporate group, people, the people of God, our corporate identity. And Paul's going to wake us up in this section and say, well, if you you don't know much about that or hadn't thought much about that, it's huge. And that's what he's going to talk about in the section today. So I'm going to break this down into three sections, and I'm going to use some kind of gospel 
pronouns, if I could say it that way. Uh, I think the first section we're going to read is really about us and them. It's about Jew and Gentile that were apart and separated. But then they came to him. That's the second pronoun, Jesus. They came to him, and now in him, it's we. We are the people of God. So it starts with them, it moves to him, and then it ends up with we, which is what we will talk about today. So let's start with us and them, or them, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh, in the flesh, by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's another before and after passage. Last week we looked at, he said, you were dead in sin, now you're alive in Christ. It was before and after. This is a before and after too, but it's a before and after, not individually, but corporately. He's saying, you as Gentiles used to be separated from God's people, the Jews. And he gives us a hint that there was hostility. He's going to use that word in the next section, but he gives us a hint. He said, the Jews used to call you, quote, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. They called themselves the circumcision. They called you the uncircumcision. And he's trying to let the Gentiles know these are mostly Gentile readers. And by the way, a Gentile is a non-Jew. So there's Jewish people and everybody else is Gentile. So I think I'm speaking to a room primarily of Gentiles today, not exclusively. And so he's saying, um, you know, look, they called you the circumcision. You were the other. You were the people, the outsiders. You were them. That's how the Jews thought of you. Now, by the way, you thought of the Jews as them as well because you didn't like them. But they called you the uncircumcision. That, that was a term of disdain. Now, in our day, uh, we would never be talking about people in these terms. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, you're like, wow, this is really awkward that we're even talking about it now. I understand that. But for them, uh, this represented the sign. Circumcision was the sign that a male was part of the people of God, Israel. And so he's saying when they called them the uncircumcision, they might as well be calling them those who are outside God's people, those who are separate. It was a term to look down upon them. So he says, you were the them. And he wants them to remember what it was like. Remember your condition. And he gives us about five things here that describe how they were distant from God and his people. Verse 12, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were separated from the people of God, so you were separated from the hope for the Messiah. I mean, there's nothing worse that could be said about anyone than they were separated from Christ. He says, you were next, he says, verse 12, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The nation of Israel had a special relationship with God, and you weren't part of that is what he's reminding them. Israel had this special relationship because they had promises from God. They had his law. They had his temple. They had his worship. They had his land. They had his provision and his care. And Paul's reminding them, you weren't a part of that. You were on the outside looking in, or maybe not even looking in, just on the outside. He says, you were next strangers to the covenants of promise. 
What that means is God made promises to his people. A big one was he made a promise to Abraham, and he said, from you, I'm going to build an entire nation, and from that nation, ultimately, the Messiah will come, and you'll be a blessing to the whole world, but I'm going to build a nation, and my activity is going to be focused in you as the people of God. That was the story of the Bible, that God, uh, the first people, Adam and Eve, fell, rebelled against God, and everything changed, Um, and then he promised to make things new, and he began by choosing a man, Abraham, and building a people out of him. So what God was doing in the earth, his primary activity during that time, the Old Testament, was to gather a people for himself, to build them, to grow them, to teach them about himself, to call them to be different than the world so that they would testify what he's like, and to live with the promise that one day a Messiah would come who would be the king for all. And so he's telling the Gentiles, you weren't a part of that story. You weren't involved in that at that time at at all. Uh, A a theologian and pastor named Eugene Peterson has written a paraphrase of the Bible. It's not a translation like what we're reading. It's a paraphrase. He gives the ideas of it. It, It's called the message. And this is how he wrote these two verses, 11 and 12. And boy, this hits home. He says, don't take this for granted. It was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's ways had no idea of any of this. You didn't know the first thing about the way God works. You hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel. You hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. So you see what he's saying here? It wasn't just that you didn't personally, individually have a relationship with God. That's true. You didn't have a clue about what God was up to. And because of that, you didn't understand what he was doing corporately with people. Because of that, the next phrase is, you were without hope. You having no, verse 12, having no hope. Because you were separated from God and his people, detached from his history, you had no hope. And then the final thing is he says, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. You lived apart from the knowledge of God. You lived apart from the understanding his purposes. And you know what? Therefore, you didn't really have the real purpose for which you were created. You you were separated from his purposes. Now, many of us tend to think, as I said, individually about our individual relationship with God. But this is all communal. Do you know what he's saying? He's just saying here, you people, in essence, were separated. You were the them. To the, to the people of God. But verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he's saying, this is the good news. Your people, your group, the Gentiles, you were distant, you were ignorant, you were hopeless, you were separate, you were outsiders, but now everything has changed. And because of Christ, You've been, chapter 1 says, adopted into the family. You've been connected to God and his purposes to bring everything back together, to restore all things in Christ. You're now a part of the, the grand work of God on the planet. But just yesterday, you didn't know any of this. So he's reminding them of what happened. But now you know this, the next pronoun is him. You know him. Verses 14 through 17 are about Jesus 14, 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to you, those of you who were near. So now we are in him. Verse 14, he himself is our peace. So Jesus came, you believed, and that changed everything. His sacrificial death and his resurrection has brought us peace. Now, we often have a very uh, shallow understanding of the word, the biblical word, peace. We tend to think of peace as absence of conflict, and it is that, or we think of it sort of as tranquility. I've got a peaceful, easy feeling. As the Eagles sang, some of the older people in the room are chuckling because I'm quoting lyrics that are dated, but uh, peaceful, easy feeling. So we think of it as tranquility of soul. But the word peace is much deeper than that. In the Bible, the word peace, uh, the New Testament word peace is really based on the Old Testament, the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom is much grander than an absence of conflict. Shalom means life as it was meant to be lived and to be experienced. Shalom means flourishing and fullness and wholeness of life. It means security. It means soundness in all of our relationships. And so he says, in Christ, you've been brought into God's very shalom. And that, that affects your relationship with one another, Jew and Gentile. The two have become one man. So there was hostility, he said, but now you're together because Jesus' death on the cross not only atones for our sins to make us right with God vertically, but it reconciles us to one another his people as well. Now, he says you were previously divided. How were they divided? Well, there was a wall that separated you, and there's kind of two ideas about this wall. One is it was the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So the Jews had all kinds of laws, kind of ceremonial laws that separated from the Gentiles. So it said you're very, you were separated from God's people because they had different diet restrictions. They treated the weak differently. They had a Sabbath. Uh, their clothing material and the makeup of the content of their clothing was different. Uh, Their relationships were different. They couldn't marry one of you. A Jew couldn't marry a Gentile. So they had all of these kind of things that divided them from you. And if that wasn't enough, it was very stark at the temple. Uh, Some Gentiles were interested in God and were God-fearers and wanted to know God. But under the Old Covenant, they were separated from the Jews. So if you went to the temple in Jerusalem, there were these courts uh, around the temple, and actually they had separation among various uh, Jews there as well. But there was a whole different level for Gentiles. So all of the Jews were at one level, and then there uh, at the temple there was 14 steps down and a wall around the entire temple. And the, the, the Gentiles were at that lower level. They, they couldn't ascend the steps because there was a wall all the way around, and written on that wall was the threat of the punishment of death if they broke the barrier. So if you come where the Jews are in worship, then you do so at risk to your own life. They were separated. 
And it was a comprehensive separation. It was certainly religious, but it was more than religious. It was even ethnic, we might say. There were cultural traditions outside of religion that made the two different, um, that separated them, different customs and uh, different cultural ways of doing things and this sort of thing. And so now he's saying, now you've moved from us and them to him, you're one in Christ, and so now there is this new we that did not uh, exist before. The hostility has been killed because he says in the text, Jesus it took in his own body, he, he uh, has broken down the wall in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. So as Jesus' body is torn and ripped, that is actually a ripping and tearing of the very wall that separated Jew and Gentile so that everybody could be one in him. Amen, that's right. It is much bigger than we think. We tend to think of an individual kind of thing. He's saying, man, you were so far outside, you couldn't even approach where the Jews could, and now you're all one. Such good news. Look at the new we, verses 18 through 22. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens and members, you are fellow, I'm sorry, you are fellow, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he said, you are outsiders now, everything's changed. He gives three images here. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens. What does that mean? Well, you're, you may still be a Roman citizen, but you're, you have a higher allegiance and a higher citizenship. You're now a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, you're a citizen of this new kingdom, and this citizenship trumps all other citizenships. I don't don't care what it says on your passport, being a citizen in the kingdom of God is greater and more important and your primary identity. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, whether regardless of what country, nation you're from, what color you are, what, what, what's your gender. Uh, it, 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 the, the, the boundaries that are set, the national boundaries, the cultural boundaries, the language boundaries, we are now all in Christ and we have a union that supersedes all differences, is what he says. Well, we're not only united in the kingdom, but we're in his family. He says you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's more intimate. It's one thing to be citizen of the same nation. It's much more intimate to be part of the same family. And he's saying now you're in the same family, Jew and Gentile, together, brothers and sisters. He goes on, and the final thing is he says you're being united as a temple. You're being built together. You notice uh, verse 22, he's talking about a temple here. He calls it the household of God. But verse 22, he says you're being built together into a dwelling place for God. Well, what's the dwelling place for God? In the Old Testament, the dwelling place for God's the temple. So this is mind-blowing. You were a Gentile. You couldn't even get access into the temple. Now you are the temple because God dwells in you. 
This is what the Lord is doing. He's not just saving a collection of individuals. He's building them together into a dwelling place for his spirit. And how is he building them? Well, first of all, he's building them on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does that mean? The apostles and prophets were the ones who brought revelation from God. In other words, this is the word of the apostles and prophets. Prophets, generally speaking, your Old Testament, the apostles are your New Testament. But he's saying, you are being built on the word of God. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, you're being built together on the Word of God. Jesus is the cornerstone. A cornerstone was a huge rock, a huge stone that was placed in the corner, uh, hence the name cornerstone, of a building, and it would kind of line out, uh, you know, how the building was to the lines of the building, and it connected the foundation to the walls. So everything's connected to the cornerstone. It's more important than the foundation. So he's saying, here's Jesus. Jesus connects the word of God to the building, the people of God. It's all connected to him. He's uniting all things in him. And so it's all about him holding us up, him sustaining us. We're all built on him is what he's saying. And then he says, in him, you also, not you also, Gentiles, are being built together into a dwelling place for God. So he doesn't use the word, but I think it'd be very fair to say we're like stones. Peter does use that word in the New Testament. So you've got the cornerstone, you've got the foundation, and you've got the building blocks. And guess what he's saying? You Jews and Gentiles used to have hostility. You looked down upon one another. You were separate from one another. You had nothing to do with one another. And now you're right next to each other connected to Christ. I'm, I'm building a house with my presence with people that could not have been more different from one another, could not have been more separated from one another. And now you are right together in the same household, in the same family, in the same kingdom, and it's more than that, built one on top of another. This is the mystery of the gospel. This is what God has done that, that is beyond Description. It's hard for us to appreciate the impact of the division of Jew and Gentile in this day. Um, There's certainly cultural divisions in our day, but it's hard to imagine what this was like to a first century Jew, how absolutely offensive this would have sounded to someone who didn't believe in Jesus. Absolute blasphemy to someone who didn't believe in Jesus. And he's saying we've changed, everything has been change. It's not just your individual spiritual death to life, but it's also separate to now joined. Hostility to shalom. Outsider to insider. Now, here's why this is also challenging for us, because the New Testament makes way more, um, let me reset it, it places way more emphasis on the horizontal dimensions of salvation than we do. A lot of, we live in a culture where it's okay, sadly, it's okay in much of the evangelical world just to pray a prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, get a Bible, start reading your Bible, have a personal spiritual life, and maybe occasionally attend a church just to build yourself up spiritually, to show up uh, online or into a building to get some spiritual goods and services to go about and live your individual life, and that's viewed as okay. There's nothing in the Bible that resembles anything like that. In many ways, the new, new covenant is similar to the old covenant in this way, that it's corporate, it's the people. In the old covenant, you didn't invite Yahweh into your heart and go do your thing. No, you were in the people of God. And, and the same is true in the New Testament. You are joined to the people of God. You're being built together. And a stone that's just laying all out here by itself, separated from the building, is not fulfilling its purposes. 
If you want to fulfill your purpose and you want to be a part of what God is doing, incorporated into the grand narrative of God bringing redemption to the planet and making all things new, then you as a stone have to be connected to other stones, have to be built up with other stones, and have to realize that some of the people in natural life that you would have been most hostile to are going to be your very next door neighbor in the church and for all eternity. It's just easy to say, I, don't, I, I love Jesus, I just don't like his people. That, that, that's not in the Bible. The people you, he's saying, the people you don't like, Gentiles, the Jews, you're right there with them. The people you've despised and disdained and been separate from, oh, you are together now. It's a challenge to us, isn't it? Let, let me make a couple of takeaways from this, make some application. Here's the first application. If we're going to be more biblical in our understanding of of salvation, we're going to have to focus on the new we and highlight the new we together. Now, I'm not trying to use that in some, you know, cheesy way like there's no I in team, you know, but there is an I in win. That's the answer back to that, I think. But on this one... uh, You know, I'm not trying to be cheesy and say the new we. That's really what's going on here. It moved from them to him to us, we. This it's it's corporate. Uh, I read a a book this past week, uh, written uh, by a guy who is an author, a pastor, and a hip hop artist, which ironically are three things I am, and. his name is Shai Lin, and he, he wrote a book called The New Reformation, Hope in the Fight for Ethnic Unity. And his point that he made generally in the book is that we have all kinds of we's in our life, but there's one we that trumps all those we's. And until we get that straight, uh, there won't be in the body of Christ the unity that there should be, and there certainly won't be racial reconciliation. Here's a quote from what what he writes. This is so, so well written, I think. He says, when we come to Christ in a saving way, we don't come merely as individuals with our privatized relationship with God. We're brought into a new community, more than that, a new family. In the most profound way imaginable, the Christian who says we means something entirely different post-conversion than she did when she said it before coming to the Lord. The old we was limited to our family members, our nationality, our ethnicity, our subcultural group, our political party, our gender, our alma mater, our co-workers, our fellow sports fans, etc., But in Christ, there's a new we that supersedes every previous group we once identified with. And this new we is diverse, extraordinarily diverse. The new we is black and white, male and female, youthful and elderly, Republican and Democrat, metropolitan and rural. It's scholarly, and it lacks formal education. It's blue-collar, and it's white-collar. It's upper-class, and it's lower-class. It's international. It's multilingual. It's multicolored. It's blood-bought, and it's glorious. This is the new we. Amen. It's a good book. I recommend the book. But, but that, that is so true that the new we is glorious 
And God has made the new we. This is what is so important in all this. If, if you were here the first week, I made a point in the first sermon in, in Ephesians to say this. That in the first, I remember I said something like this. In the first three chapters, there's no commands. Or I forget, there may be one command. I said something like that. Uh, but in the first three chapters, there are virtually no commands. It's all what God has done. Chapters four through six, there are commands. What we do in light of what God's done. Well, there is one there is one command in chapters 1 through 3, and we read it today. It's in verse 11. Therefore, remember that as one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Therefore, remember. That's a command. And then he says that again in verse 12. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. So what he's saying is live with this remembrance of where you were because now God has done something to make you joined with his people and to make you one. This is all God's doing. So he doesn't say go get reconciled, go get unified, make unity happen, hold hands in a circle and create something, think real hard, uh, you know, positive thoughts and, and, and energy and let's bring some oneness together. He doesn't say that. He says God's already done this. In Jesus, he's made one new person, one new man. He said, he said in the text, he took the two and made us one. So the body of Christ is like a third race or a third group or a third, you know, reality. You were Jew and Gentile, now you're one in Christ. He has made this, he has created this oneness, and now your call is to remember it and by implication, live it out. Live it out. Live out what he has already done. And what we found out as a church and as the evangelical movement in the U.S. in the last 18 months is this is much easier said than done. It's easy to say, yeah, we're all one until somebody has a different view than I do on politics or race or COVID. Those are the three biggies from the last 18 months. And then all of a sudden, my view on that, that's top, that's first. And kingdom is second or third or maybe not even thought of sometimes. But he's saying you need to go back and remember what he's done and take this as your identity. Take your highest identity. You don't lose other identities. But take your highest identity as part of God's people, part of the kingdom, part of a citizen, part of the body, part of the temp being the temple. This unity that we have in Jesus, the one new person. This is what we're called to. So the first idea, I think, is a takeaway is we have to focus on the new we. And it's a muscle that's not used very much for most of us. Some of you, um, based on your ethnic background and your culture, perhaps you grew up way more corporate in your identity. Uh, and so it was us. It was our group. So maybe you did grow up with that. And so you kind of get the people group thing. But some of us didn't grow up with that. And so, man, we, this is a muscle I'm not using very often, the we. Immediately thinking about salvation, we. Thinking about God, we. Going there. Number two, the new we, so I'm going to balance this a bit. The new we doesn't erase every other category for us. It simply calls us to recognize other categories uh, and value them, but keep this category of we first, the people of God. So, uh, if you read elsewhere in the New Testament, you'll kind of see this. He didn't say, check your 
ethnic background at the door. Like, there are no more Gentiles. There are no more. He didn't erase every custom. So if you went to Gentile grandma's house and had Gentile meals on certain celebration times, he didn't say get away from those cultural events unless they had to do with eating meat in a temple that was offered to an idol. First Corinthians said, don't do that. But other than that, you still carry much of your cultural background, and it's to be celebrated. So we don't see in the Bible him erasing every group, every identity, every difference in our lives. He simply says, every barrier is down so that you may now be one. And this is especially true with, uh, with racial and ethnic differences. In some ways, now it's not an exa- it doesn't map on exactly. It's not exactly the same to say modern racial tension maps on exactly with this because there's a religious dimension here that would be different. But much of the principle does map onto it and is similar. And when it comes to racial and ethnic differences, um, To say that we are one in Christ doesn't erase those differences, minimize them, or say that they have no value. And the reason we know this in the Bible is because in Revelation 7, we get a picture of people worshiping God in heaven. And this is what we read, Revelation 7, 9. John says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. So when John sees the sea of an innumerable sea of people, he can identify differences. There's different languages and there's different nations and there's different tribes represented. And some people, especially in majority culture, want to say, well, I'm just colorblind. Well, then you're not going to like heaven because God's not colorblind and heaven is not colorblind. And it's not a statement of great love and nobility to say that I disregard all differences. God's plan is that we recognize differences, but make them uh, gifts to be treasured and to be valued, but secondary to our union in Christ, which is primary. Because in heaven, John doesn't see a sea of generic individuals. And I looked, and everybody was exactly the same. It was generic. There was no distinction whatsoever. That is not what he writes. He writes that I see a people from all kind of backgrounds. The glory of it is that they came from all kind of backgrounds, but now they're one worshiping the Lamb. That's the glory. The glory is that Jew and Gentile who hated each other are now having communion together, loving each other, having meals together, and all the people around are saying, what happened to them? How is that working out? They have no answer for that. To, to be colorblind and to erase all differences is to gut the power of the gospel, which says God unifies us in our differences, where we say he is glorious and he builds us together as a people that is a witness to those who look on, who look at our culture and say nobody can get along, nobody can figure it out, we can't legislate it, we can't work it out through uh, you know, various nonprofits, we can't work it out in any, the only place it's going to get worked out is in the church of Jesus Christ. Christ. And we may not be doing great, but we're the hope of the world. We're the hope of the world on this one. So, heaven is not ethnically indistinct, nor are we. Sometimes we don't want to, and I'm going to speak for me right now. 
Sometimes we don't want to acknowledge differences. It's like awkward. Like, well, somebody say, I, I've been told that, hey, when you bring up race, uh, when you talk about it, and we talked about it a number of times last year, whenever you bring up race things, I think I've, I've received pushback. I think you're contributing to the problem by dividing people, uh, you know, in, into to race. And uh, so that, that, that's keeping the problem. Well, I don't think so. It, he mentions Jew and Gentile. He, God does this. He mentions uh, the differences. Uh, I think it's acknowledging where we are. We have to acknowledge God's glorious creation and the way he makes us distinct uh, in, you know, in, in those ways. But, I can, but it can be awkward to acknowledge it. We had a class this summer. We taught a lot of classes. But we had a class on racial reconciliation. And uh, I taught it with an African-American couple in our church. The three of us taught it together. And uh, in the class, so I, the goal of the class was this. We're going to read together about lament. And uh, we're going to seek to understand one another's experiences and stories. And a lot of it was focused on majority culture, understanding minority experience, both in our nation and in the church. Uh, but it, it went both ways, everybody trying to understand one another. And so we had to have diverse conversations. So this means I had to look at the first night of the class with everybody and divide people up and acknowledge we need to be racially distinct in our circles. And I, I didn't know how to talk about that. I was as awkward as a, as, it was like I was at a seventh grade dance. I did not know what, to, which is no, being at a modern dance for me is no, no more awkward, no less awkward than the seventh grade dance. But, uh, but you know, what, what say, okay, so we, we got to divide up like in, by race, but we got to be different races sort of like in each uh, circle. And then, oh, whoa, well, too many white people over here. Can we get a few uh, uh, darker b black people over here, and it's just awkward. I didn't know how to talk about it, but, but the glory was we were divided up into circles that were mixed races. We studied the book and God's Word together, and then we threw out questions about race and talked about them. Amazing. We weren't reading hot takes on social media or pick your favorite biased news channel, whatever it is. Uh, we weren't looking that for, we were looking at church members with whom we were, for whom we were responsible, whom we were being built together with and saying, tell me your experience and learning from one another. It was this. It was this unity, and it's been a beautiful thing, but it only worked by recognizing difference, acknowledging them, learning from one another, and celebrating them, and it's continued on in dinners. We're now taking people from that class, and we're divided up. Second time, it was easy to divide up racially. Dividing up racially, and we are getting around, uh, not in racial groups, mixed groups, and we are getting in people's uh, dinner table. We're having meals together around uh, multi-ethnic tables, and we are talking about issues. And uh, if that's something that interests you, we plan to do some more of that in the future. But that's what's happening right now. But it's this. It's acknowledging differences, but it's saying, okay, I want to understand how you experience the world. I want to know how I understand how you experience the world. And now can we all agree that we're one in Jesus in this meal, and this is beautiful. Let's learn and grow together because we, what we have in common is way more, uh, is way deeper than what, in, in the ways that we are different. Well, the final idea is that we just have to live out the reconciliation that God has called us to. He creates it. Uh, it's his work. But we're to remember it. And by remembering how he's made us one, walk it out. Author, uh, one author wrote this way. He said, if we, Mark Roberts said, if we are going to live fully in the grace of God in Christ and participate in his cosmic work, then we must live out the story of reconciliation, both as reconciled people and as agents of reconciliation. I love that. If we're going to be a part of the cosmic work, which is bigger than me, that God is doing, then I'm going to live, I've got to live that out. So let me ask you some closing questions. 
In what ways would you say that you have bought into an overly individualistic view of salvation? You, you do need to be saved as an individual. Yes, well, praise God for that. But in what ways is that define your view of Christianity? How much we is there in your understanding of, Christ, of the faith? How can you better focus on we? What would it mean to be cultivating and developing we? Well, I'm going to give you an idea by this next question. Ask yourself this. How am I pursuing relationships with church members who are different than me? Am I? Are all all my friends, my closest friends, really similar to me? How am I developing relationships with church members who are different than me? Do I have friends that are a lot older than me? And I'm getting their perspective on life. Am I having relationships and conversations with people much younger than me? Because I guarantee you their view of life is different than mine. Am I, am I experiencing that? Am I, do I have diverse age relationships? That's what the body, that's why we're not a club where it's, everybody's the same. That's the beauty of having people from newborn uh, to their 80s in the church. It's glorious. But are we, are we recognizing the culture separates us, but Jesus takes down that cultural barrier, says you're one. How about people of, I gave the example already, of, of different races. I mean, we're learning going through this. There's people in our church that have never had dinner at a table with someone of a different race in their home. And we live in a diverse community. This is diverse. There's some diversity in our church. Am I reaching out to people who are different? How about single and married? There's sometimes more barrier in the church than in the culture on this one because we have our married programs and our single programs. So if I'm single, do I have relationships with married people? If I'm married, do I have relationships with single people? That barrier between us is shattered. Men and women's a barrier as well. Uh, God has shattered that barrier. Socioeconomics. Now, that's a tricky one because you don't know where someone's socioeconomic, but, but we should all have people that we're in friendship and relationship with who perhaps have less than we do and perhaps have more than we do. Not to be intimidated by someone who has more wealth than we do and not to in any way view ourselves as better than someone who has less, but one in Christ. Admittedly, it's hard. I can't really go up on a Sunday morning and say, hi, I'm Craig. How much do you make? Uh, because I'm looking for people that are at least 20% richer than me and, and also some people that are 20% below. But if you're in that range, I'm not, yeah, I don't know how you do this. But you kind of know people that are maybe at a different place than you. Building those kinds of relationships. Let's return to the command. The command in the passage is remember. Remember. And God has given us a wonderful way to remember. It's called communion. And we do it in remembrance of him that his body was broken. Tim, you can come on up. That his body was broken to make us one. And when we receive communion, we often focus on the vertical part of it. His blood is shed so that my sins are forgiven. May it ever be. We'll worship the lamb on the throne uh, whose blood was shed for us. May it ever be, ever be, forever and ever. But there's also this horizontal dimension that that, uh, is sometimes more challenging, that I've been united to his people. I'm, I'm in with them, and I am one with them. And Jesus' death not only reconciles me to him, but reconciles me to his people as well. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.